Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute. Uh, not a very new podcast anymore. This is episode 100 and something, I think. Uh, well, I never remember the episode numbers, but uh, so like I said, we're not very new. But for those of you uh, just tuning in for the first time, basically uh, what this podcast is, is uh, I invite an author on to discuss a book of theirs that's been newly published or recently published, something uh, we think you guys... On, on a topic or a person or thing that we uh, think you guys would like to hear a conversation about. And then hopefully at the end of the podcast or, you know, even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers about you, you uh, go ahead and uh, purchase the book yourself and give it a read. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show and also by sharing with your friends as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Dr. Paul Moreno. And Dr. Moreno is the William and Bernice Grucock Chair in Constitutional History, Professor of History, and Dean of Social Sciences at Hillsdale College. Uh, you might have seen his writings in National Review, Forbes, The Spectator, Investors Business Daily, The Independent Review, The Journal of Southern History, Academic Questions, The Journal of Policy History, and Law and Liberty, among many others. Uh, he is also the author of The American State from the Civil War to the New Deal, The Twilight of Constitutionalism and the Triumph of Progressivism, From Direct Action to Affirmative Action, Fair Employment Law and Policy in America, 1933 to 1972, and Black Americans and Organized Labor, A New History. And lastly, he is the author of How the Court Became Supreme, The Origins of American Juristocracy, uh, which was published back in September by LSU Press and is the book we'll be discussing today. So, uh, Dr. Marina, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Great to be on the show. Um, thanks. No problem. Um, so, I guess starting off, uh, simply because it's a word I don't think I had encountered until I saw it in the subtitle of the book, and that is uh, juristocracy. So, what is juristocracy, and is it a problem? And also, I guess, uh, sort of in that realm... Um, what made you want to write this book? What was the what was the genesis of it? Yeah, that term was one that I hadn't heard of until I got into you know, researching for the book, and it was coined by a um, a political scientist named Rand Herschel, uh, who's written a couple a book and uh, some articles about this. And one of the most surprising things that I discovered in this was that uh, the American style of judicial supremacy, which really was unique uh, when the when we adopted the Founders' Constitution. Uh, and really wasn't until after World War II, mostly, that other countries began to follow our pattern. And um, countries like uh, Israel, especially, and uh, Canada and uh, New Zealand, uh, Herschel points out, have sort of followed the American model where uh, their high courts become the most powerful institutions in their constitutional system. Uh, even Great Britain, which for a long time was the sort of counter example to the United States where they had you know, parliamentary supremacy parliament the constitution was what parliament said it was uh they established a supreme court and right away they started to involve themselves politically in things like the the brexit controversy so i wanted to tell the story of how the united states adopted this uniquely uh supreme you know powerful judicial system i i said it's the most i think that part of american constitutional development that would have most surprised uh, the founders and then late in my uh, uh, research, I found that this this part of the American constitutional system, which I think is one of the worst features, uh, has been one that other countries have been have been following. So it's a very bad sign for sort of democratic self-government uh, all over the world. Mm -hmm. Now, um, 
juristocracy is not quite the same thing as judicial supremacy, or is it, or is there a uh, a difference between those two terms. Yeah, well, the judicial supremacy and the idea of the Supreme Court, um, you know, you could say that having the court be supreme within the American judicial system, that they were the, you know, the top of the uh, of, of our legal system. Uh, that's that's one thing. And I think the founders imagined uh, that that would be the case, although they did also envision a great deal of power sharing with uh, state courts. But it's it's the court's assertion of supremacy over the other branches of the federal government, over the president and Congress, and increasingly in uh, uh, over the bureaucracy, which was the subject of my last book, mm-hmm. uh, that has made them, you know, the uniquely powerful institution that they are. Essentially, it really comes down to uh, a case in 1958, shortly after Brown versus Board of Education, where the court came out and said for the first time that you know, the Constitution says that the Constitution laws and treaties are the supreme law of the land and in 1958 the court said and our interpretation of the constitution is also the supreme law of the land so essentially they were saying the constitution is what we say it is well that was nice enough yeah yeah (laughs) um so but so can we can we conflate judicial supremacy with judicial activism activism or well yeah, I, I was. I tried to be careful with that term as well because uh, there are times where the court needs to be more active than it is, and there have certainly been times in its history when it's failed uh, to do its job, which is to, you know, keep uh, its place within the system, uh, to hold other constitutional actors within uh, their places. Uh, I mean, the founders definitely wanted a, a powerful, independent judiciary, mm. and uh, they have a, uh, you know, an obligation. Uh, to strike down laws that are unconstitutional, <clears throat> but they need to do so in a way that sort of respects the, the equal position that other constitutional actors have. This is why if you look at famous uh, clashes, especially in the 19th century, uh, if you look at Andrew Jackson and the way he responded to uh, 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 judicial um, overreach, uh, Abraham Lincoln, most famously in his reaction to the Dred Scott case, mm-hmm. and the way the Congress Although it very, very rarely does this, but sometimes Congress has exercised its Article Three power to you know, regulate the jurisdiction uh, of the court. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. So, yeah, but this idea of of a separate judicial branch, branch, uh, a separate and equal or theoretically equal judicial branch, this doesn't date back very far in history. This is something um, that only really arose in 17th, 18th century England and is sort of uh, sort of sui generis to uh, English common law. Exactly. Um, uh, just the idea of there being uh, three branches of government and the judiciary as, as one of them uh, really only dates back to Montesquieu. Uh, Aristotle discussed judicial power in the politics as a, as a separate category, but it really didn't develop until much, much later. And the English did, after the English Civil War and the Glorious Revolution, one of the big break, breaks, breakthroughs there uh, was giving judges you know, life tenure. Mm. Uh, they used to serve at the pleasure of the king, but then they served uh, during good behavior. Although Parliament has the power to remove judges by, uh, by simple majorities. They've never done so. Uh, mm. Some states adopted that. But the Article Three uh, life tenure, salary guaranteed uh, judiciary was the most you know, the, the, the strongest and most independent one that had ever been created. Yeah. So are you hear a lot about this on certain 
uh, factions on the right. But are the are the founders at fault? Is the Constitution at fault for for the situation we're in now? And should they have been more prescient in uh, you know uh, what they were doing? Was basically was this this I, or this juristocracy we're now uh, currently living under? Um, was that something that was just like already baked in <laughs> to the constitution and it was just yeah. needed to be sort of teased out? No, I, I think not. And, uh, one, in you know, one chapter, I tried to address that question about, you know, were the founders to blame? And then mm-hmm. a lot of conservatives also say, well, if not, then John Marshall right. is to blame. And I try to uh, exonerate him as well. It's remarkable how little controversy Article 3 gave rise to in the ratification uh, debates. There was one anti-federalist who took the pseudonym uh, Brutus, Brutus, who was Robert Yates of New York, who, you know, he nailed it, uh, but he really was unique. I I searched as hard as I could for others uh, who were able to recognize, you know, in, in an almost prophetic kind of way. But more remarkable was the consensus among just about all Americans that the courts had been on the right side, in, especially in the English uh, constitutional conflicts of the 17th century and in the lead up to the American Revolution. And under the state constitutions in the 1780s, where you see the first cases of judicial review, mm-hmm. you know, they were resisting uh, what, what Madison calls in the Federalist Papers, you know, the uh, tyranny of the majority. And then, you know, Alexis de Tocqueville goes to, to uh, sort of praise the American uh, this this American innovation. So no, I don't think you can blame the founders. And the other really important thing is they built a lot of safeguards uh, into the Constitution. Uh, and Madison discusses these in Federalist um, 39, where he says that you know if we're going to have these conflicts between the states and the federal government. And he says ultimately the tribunal that settles those conflicts is a national one. But he says there are lots of precautions and safeguards uh, that will prevent them from, you know, acting, uh, acting recklessly. And they're still there. Uh, you, know, you know, court packing is sort of the crudest, although the most common way uh, that, that, that politicians have tried to get the courts under control. But Article 3 allows Congress to limit the court's uh, jurisdiction. It allows them to, uh, you know, uh, Thomas Jefferson was able to do away with a bunch of federalist judges by doing away with their their courts. Right. So there's a lot of you know potential in in Article Three of the Constitution. Now, they've been so infrequently used, and the court has become so powerful now that I wouldn't put it past them to say that any attempt by Congress to do that was itself unconstitutional, and they might well get away with it. Yeah. Uh, just going back to Brutus, um, I was actually when I was reading that uh, section, I think it's in the second chapter. Um, when the, when you, uh, uh, talk about some of Brutus or excerpt some of Brutus's writings on this, I was like, man, I was like, uh, Brutus is looking pretty good 200 years, 200 years later. He, he, he nailed it pretty much. And, uh, the, if you look at Alexander Hamilton in Federalist 78, he gave the classic justification, uh, for judicial review. And John Marshall pretty much just uh, reiterated it in uh, Marbury against Madison. Mm. Uh, but in some of the other Federalist papers that had to do with the judiciary, and there's only about five of them. I think it's, you know, 78 through 83 yeah. are the uh, judicial ones. And in one of them, uh, Hamilton tries to justify the way that the judges are chosen and their life tenure and doesn't do a very good job of it. He just sort of takes it for granted. And in yeah. some ways, it, it almost looks like he's kind of trying to avoid uh, the question. 
And there have been a couple of scholars, a guy named Paul Caress, especially, uh, who've made the argument that, yes, the founders are responsible for this and actually intended for, you know, a powerful judiciary to protect a kind of commercial republic that uh, Mm. sort of to protect uh, against the uh, worst excesses of democracy. And, uh, yeah, that's basically uh, the anti-federalist argument against the Constitution as a whole. Uh, And in a way, it's also um, this guy Rand Herschel's argument about why other countries have adopted powerful judiciaries. Usually it's when powerful groups are losing their grip, losing their their ability to control politics, that they try to sort of lock in uh, uh, their their gains by a powerful judiciary. So, yeah, there's the the anti-federalists had a, uh, I think, a better argument than they really uh, were able to express. Mm Part of the reason why the Federalists win the ratification debate was just they had, you know, they were better rhetorically. You know, their, their arguments were more right, thorough right. and more convincing. Yeah, it's funny, too, uh, just back to the Federalists or the Federalist Papers. Um, you, you know, they become this cornerstone text of American governance. But uh, I think people probably tend to forget that the, <laughs> all those uh, pieces were basically or essentially like the uh, 18th century equivalent of, of op-eds, you know yeah. what I mean? Like they were uh, those, uh, Hamilton and, and Madison and Jay to a lesser extent, uh, were basically just like tossing those off like two a week, <laughs> you yep. know, like, so there wasn't, I mean, <clears throat> so you, you talk about, uh, Hamilton, um, you know, maybe sidestepping the question. I mean, that's possible. Uh, but he might have just also been in a hurry <laughs> yeah, <yes. laughs> or like, up against the deadline or something. And, you know, it just didn't have time to tease it out or, uh, you know, go through it so thoroughly, you know. Uh, right. And, and in fact, since they were the latest numbers in the series, mm-hmm. I think that the ratification debate was practically over by the time they, they got written. Yeah. And especially by the time they got published. So a lot of historians have pointed out that, you know, the Federalist Papers really didn't have much of an impact at all on the actual ratification debate. Uh, but then they became considered the sort of most important uh, uh, interpretation, the most important commentary uh, mm-hmm. on the Constitution. And as I said, John Marshall uh, certainly uh, took uh, 78 and used it that way in, in Marbury against Madison. And you know, Hamilton also, unfortunately, you know, he's he's taken out of the picture, you know, in 1804. And uh, in a way, John Marshall sort of carries on a Hamiltonian view of mm-hmm. the Constitution as uh, chief justice for another 30 years. Yeah. So um, speaking of just is there a point where uh, where judicial review becomes a problem? Certainly, there are several points. I think uh, Dred Scott is, you know, almost everybody regards it as the worst decision in the the court's history. And that was the first example of sort of today's style of uh, of judicial activism, uh, where, you know, the court is just taking sides, trying to settle a political question and uh, uh, sort of, you know, fanciful history that goes into it. And uh, it's in, it's the most impressive thing, though, is how quickly Dred Scott was you know, put to rest. Yeah. Uh, the Lincoln and the Republicans were very explicit about you know, rejecting it. We're going to make sure that it doesn't become uh, a precedent. And most people would say that uh, you know, it took the 14th Amendment uh, to to make you know, to overturn Dred Scott. But actually, Lincoln and the Republican Congress acted in ways that treated that case as if it had no no binding effect. Yeah, it was a dead letter, basically. Right, right on related policy questions. Yeah. As Lincoln said, we're not going to raise a mob and free Dred Scott. You know, we respect the court's decision in particular cases, but we're not going to allow them to you know settle sort of all related political uh, questions. So it was a healthy sign that uh, the theory was uh, come to be called departmentalism. 
the idea that the president and the Congress are equally capable of uh, sort of giving meaning to the Constitution. Uh, this was Andrew Jackson's position. Uh, Ed Meese tried to uh, revive this in the 1980s uh, in reaction to sort of the, the, uh, the liberal Warren and, and Burger courts. Uh, and he was a lot of academics, intellectuals responded with, you know, shock. Uh, but actually, that was the, the mainstream tradition for most of American history. Mm. So uh, moving forward a little bit from uh, the Tawny Court and the Dred Scott area. So you read about the period of between Reconstruction and the New Deal, how it represents sort of a transitional period or an intermediate period in the rise of judicial supremacy. This is, you know, what some people refer to as the laissez-faire era or the or the Lochner era. Uh, what what makes this period uh, different from the period that precedes it and the period, a period that uh, is going to uh, overtake it? Uh, uh, what uh, what happened? What was going on there that made this period like a little interregnum? Yeah, well, I think the most important thing was that the the legitimacy of judicial review, especially when it came to striking down acts of Congress uh, rather than the states, it had only been done twice uh, before the Civil War, Marbury and uh, Dred Scott. And it certainly became a lot more common in this period. And it became controversial in the 1890s, especially where, um, you know, Justice Scalia famously said, uh, you know, that with regard to abortion and homosexual rights and all that, that the, the court had taken sides in the culture war. Mm-hmm. And it looked like in this period that they'd taken sides in the, the social war, the, the class war. Right. Uh, they struck down the income tax. They were very hard on labor unions. Uh, they, they, they appeared to uh, uh, eviscerate the, um, you know, the antitrust laws. And suddenly the court became, you know, a campaign issue, especially in 1896, where uh, William Jennings Bryan and the populists uh, sort of attacked uh, the court. Um, but they withstood it, and they they were able to create the legend of Marbury against Madison. Uh, this idea that John Marshall was the uh, the author of modern style uh, judicial review, and most people have accepted that today, and they've they've, they've read back much deeper into the 19th century, a sort of pedigree uh, for judicial activism than, than was really there. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is that most historians, even progressive historians, even history, you know, liberal historians, now recognize that cases like Lochner and the cases that struck down progressive uh, legislation were very few and far between. Uh, and that the court you know, was, was sort of as a result of progressive, populist and New Deal propaganda uh, was accused of being a lot more activist than it, than it really was. If you don't mind, um, if you could, because I, I know most people are familiar with the most part with Dred Scott and Brown v. Board and, and Roe and all that stuff, but but uh, most people who aren't um, legal scholars who haven't practiced law or studied law or anything probably don't know um, much about the, the Lochner case, Lochner v. New York. Could you go ahead just to explain a little bit what that case was? Yeah, New York State passed a law that said that uh, bakers couldn't work more than 10 hours a day or 60 hours uh, in a week. And the court struck that down, saying that it violated the 14th 14th Amendment's uh, liberty uh, provision. Uh, This is what's known as substantive due process or liberty of contract. Uh, It's the same principle today that the court uh, used to uphold abortion rights and and homosexual rights up until recently, uh, abortion rights. So that is, you know, substantive due process became kind of like a wild card. It's sort of almost a natural law principle where the court is able to say, you know, we just think there are certain fundamental rights 
that uh, majorities can interfere with. And in the late 19th century, the, the right to make contracts that had to do with you know, making a living in ordinary occupations like uh, baking, uh, you know, not hazardous ones. And, you know, for adult males who were able to take care of themselves, you know, women and children uh, were sort of treated uh, differently. Uh, but this case, Lochner became sort of emblematic. It became sort of the it, it, scholars tended to depict it as being representative uh, of the era. Uh, and it really wasn't. Uh, again, it was, it was quite rare that the court uh, intervened in this kind of way. Another case that people might know from this period was Plessy against Ferguson, mm -hmm. uh, where the court upheld segregation, was up, uh, later struck down by some of the successor cases to uh, Brown versus Board of Education. But that was much more typical of what the, the court's attitude in those years, where uh, the state of Louisiana said, well, as a police measure, uh, in order to maintain the peace between the races, to prevent race riots, we're going to separate the races in you know, places of public accommodation. And uh, most people recognize that the real motive of the legislature in this case was to reinforce white supremacy and, and uh, uh, put blacks into a second class of citizenship. But the, the majority of the court, only one justice uh, dissented, uh, just rather blithely accepted these this pretext that the state gave for exercising this this uh, this power. That was much more typical. Uh, the, the period could be better known as the Plessy era than the Lochner era. Uh, this is where a yeah. lot, especially a lot of libertarian uh, law professors today say the problem with the court in this period wasn't that it was too activist. It was that it wasn't activist enough. Uh, there was a lot more legislation that was masquerading as being in the public good that was really uh, in the interests of of, uh, of of particular classes. In the Lochner case, it appears to be that, you know, older, especially unionized bakers wanted to prevent competition from new immigrants, uh, particularly Eastern Europeans and uh, and Jews. And they got the legislature to limit their ability to compete by uh, maximum hours laws. Mm -hmm. So this is also around the time where um, we're going to see the rise of what's come to be known as legal modernism or uh or william james called the pragmatism what what exactly is uh legal modernism yeah the founders view of what the law was uh it was sort of the traditional natural law western tradition that you know law was something that was uh discovered uh by by reason and what you try to do in the common law uh, case system or when you write a constitution is to have the laws that human beings actually make be as much in conformity with the, the law of, of nature uh, as possible. Uh, this is often referred to as the discovery uh, theory of law. Mm. And shortly after the Constitution was ratified, uh, uh, alternative theories, and they were sort of lumped together under the heading of legal modernism. But they all sh one thing they all share is this idea that laws are not discovered by human beings. They're made by human beings. Uh, legal positivism is one of the chief sort of uh, rivals to the natural uh, natural law theory. So law really isn't uh, a rational intellectual exercise of reason. It's a it's about human will. Uh, law is whatever the sovereign says it is, and that sovereign could be one man or a group of men or a bunch of people uh, in a democracy. And you can see this most explicitly in uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, maybe one of the best known justices and uh, legal academics in American history, the first justice to be appointed in the 20th century and something of a hero to uh, uh, to the progressives. He's the first one to come out and say that, you know, we ought to recognize what the true nature of the law is. And it's simply about competing groups in politics trying to impose their will on on others. 
uh, it's a very you know dark, uh, kind of uh, a cynical uh, view of, uh, of of the way human law operates. Really, that the controversy traces itself back to the origins of Western you know, political thought. Yeah. Uh, uh, this is the argument of the sophists against uh, Socrates and the, the natural law tradition. Right now, um, before we move on a little bit, there was one thing I found really interesting uh, about this uh, progressive period, uh, original progressive period. That <clears throat> excuse me, you write that, uh, or you wrote that William Howard Taft uh, did more than anyone since, probably more than anyone since John Marshall, to build the court's institutional power. And you write that you could make the case uh, for Taft as the midwife of modern judicial supremacy. So I guess if, like, if Earl Warren is Christ in the analogy, <laughs> then maybe Taft is John the Baptist, you know? Uh, so how did, how did Taft, uh, why was Taft so influential in, in, in building the court's power? Yeah, he could, because he recognized or he wanted to make the court, uh, you know, sort of the, that the, the cornerstone of the American uh, judicial system. Uh, and he reorganized the federal court system in a way that that made it much more centralized and much more of, of a of a unit. You know, it's it's easy for the presidency to be seen as a uh, you know as a as a as a unit. Although you know attempts to sort of uh, fracture the president's power through the creation of independent agencies and all that has been a challenge to that. Uh, but the American court system is also very, very diffuse, and the Supreme Court really, really wasn't even all that supreme within the judicial system. Mm. Uh, a lot of lower courts just sort of went their own way and set their own uh, agendas. And Taft was able to turn it into more of a, uh, a more of a unit. You know, he actually turned out. Louis Brandeis said this, uh, especially said Taft was just a terrible president, but he really had great administrative and executive abilities mm. once he was chief justice. And he was able to lobby uh, Congress in a very you know, subtle but effective way. For instance, one of the most important things was to let the Supreme Court set its own agenda. Uh, before 1925, the, the Supreme Court had to hear every appeal that anybody with enough time and money would bring to it. So they would have to decide hundreds of the most trivial cases you know, every year. Mm -hmm. And in 1925, they were given the power to uh, decide by the writ of certiorari what cases they wanted to hear. And today they hear about 70 cases a year. Uh, so they're able to stick to the really important ones. And that sort of amplified their uh, sort of the political aspect of, uh, of what the court was doing. Uh, he he intervened uh, very much in, uh, with uh, President Harding uh, to get himself made chief justice and also to tell Harding who else to appoint uh, to, to, uh, to get on the court. Uh, again, a lot of this is, you know, we didn't know this until after he was he was uh, dead. Uh, a lot of it today would be considered not at all appropriate for a uh, judicial officer, uh, the way that he intervened in politics. Um, he also tried to emphasize the way in which the court had defended minority rights, the rights of recent immigrants, especially uh, in the 1920s, uh, foreign language minorities. Uh, this is in the 1920s, a period of nativism and the, the uh, recrudescence of the Ku Klux Klan. And as a way of making the Republican Party have more appeal to these uh, voting uh, groups, Taft tried to make the court take the, the first for the first time, really, uh, a stand on the civil liberties of minority groups. So he was very savvy, uh, very effective in the way that he was able to build the court up. And the, yeah, the monument, literally the building, the, the massive Supreme Court building that you see today uh, was Taft's work, too. Mm. Again, he worked with Congress to get uh, a bunch of money for that and to make it, you know, sort of as imposing 
as it, as it could be. You know, before this, they met in the basement of the of the Senate uh, wing of Congress. So in a way, in a very sort of physical way, it, it sort of put the Supreme Court on the same you know level, you know, literally right. as as Congress and the uh, and the presidency. So, yeah, Taft was uh, you know, he he loved the court as an institution. Uh, I think, you know, given his politics, he would have uh, regretted the ways in which judicial power would have been used uh, in later years. But he he's bears a lot of responsibility for it. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that the court, uh, you know, give or take every term does about 70 cases a year. Is that still a lot or is that, in your opinion, should, oh, they, be do- should they be doing more? Because uh, I remember I had uh, a while back um, Benjamin Barton on and for his book on the credential court. Uh, yeah. And he was talking about uh, the length of opinions in cases has increased uh, dramatically yep. <laughs> as time has gone on. And, and the opinions itself have become more complicated and sort of more uh, obtuse. Mm-hmm. Um, would it behoove the court maybe to uh, see more or take on more cases and maybe, um, you know, maybe cut down on how much they're actually going to uh, contribute to an opinion uh, in in each case? Yeah, the other thing that the Supreme Court justices had to do throughout the 19th century was serve as lower court judges within right. uh, the federal system. And the, the people who started that said this will keep them in touch with you know ordinary Americans. It'll make sure they don't get you know sort of isolated in their own ivory or sort of a, a marble tower. As they, as they are today. Another important aspect of this was the rise of the, the legal profession and sort of the mm-hmm. uh, law school clerk, you know, court network. Yeah. Uh, yeah. American and, legal power rises in tandem with yeah. formal legal education. Yeah. And that was something, something that something that Taft was was worried about. And uh, it was it wasn't until the 1880s, I think, that uh, a Supreme Court justice began to have a clerk. Uh, and you know, Horace Gray was the first one. He had to pay for the clerk himself. And later on, Congress started to pick up that. And now they, I think they each have five and the chief justice has six and they all come out of, you know, the same sort of elite, uh, core of, uh, Ivy league law schools. And it's sort of the, the, the training ground for future, uh, judges. And this was really the work of, uh, Felix Frankfurter and Louis Brandeis and Holmes. And the progressives saw this as a way of reforming the courts. Uh, they said, instead of reducing the power of the federal judiciary, let's just take it over. And th- this became the way in which they were able to sort of seed and eventually, you know, uh, control the personnel. A long march, basically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so today, every one of them, every one of the Supreme Court justices has the same basic resume, uh, same experience, you know, same same background. But if you look at, you know, FDR, for instance, you know, he appointed people who had no, you know, no legal experience. Hugo Black, for example. I'm not saying these were good choices, but uh, this idea that you didn't have to have a certain kind of education right. uh, to, uh, to be on the court. As late as uh, 1941, Robert Jackson, uh, who many people regard as a, a very great justice, uh, had never even been to law school. So, yeah, the, the rise of the legal profession and the rise of, of juristocracy sort of went hand in hand in the early 20th century. That's why conservatives had such a hard time turning things around, even when from 1969 until 1992, uh, Republican presidents had 10 unanswered appointments to the Supreme Court. And it didn't make any difference. In most yeah, of the, 10 straight in a row, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Because uh, there was no a federal society back then. There was no sort of parallel conservative pipeline uh, it took a long time to develop that, 
And again, the last term of the uh, uh, the court for conservatives indicates that you know, after it took 50 years, mm-hmm. but it finally they finally found a way of uh, appointing reliable conservatives. Yeah, well, I'll we'll get to that in a, in a second, but uh, um, just want to do a little bit more history here too. So uh, before we get to the Warren Court, but uh, FDR. Uh, well, how does the court respond to the New Deal and FDR and then FDR's plan to pack the court? How does the court go about um, shepherding its power? Yeah, that was yeah, and that's still a big controversy among uh, historians and, and legal academics. Uh, the question of you know, Roosevelt's famous plan after the court struck down a lot of New Deal legislation and after he wins a you know, landslide reelection in 1936 he asked Congress for the power to uh, give him six appointments to the Supreme Court, the, the famous court packing plan. And uh, the question of whether the court backed down, because just a couple of months after, really it was actually a couple of weeks after the plan was announced, the court uh, dramatically reversed itself in a, in a couple of high profile cases. And the question of whether the justices were responding to that political threat uh, or whether that was really just a a, a whether it was the court had already been sort of on the fence and uh, was just sort of back and forth about these issues and whether there were good internal legal reasons for those 1937 decisions uh, is a big controversy. Most historians, myself included, uh, agree that there was it was politics, that the court was trying to save its sort of institutional identity. Oh, on, on its face, it absolutely looks yeah. like that. Uh, again, there's no direct evidence for this. There's not many you know, sort of smoking guns because right. uh, justices don't often you know, tell you why they do the things that they do. Uh, well, the legal, well, the legal, I would say it's the same with uh, Justice Roberts and the Obamacare. Yes. Yeah. This Justice Roberts, uh, in fact, ironically, was the original Justice Roberts, Owen Roberts, Mm. who was one of the swing justices who switched uh, in this period. And Charles Evans Hughes, especially the chief justice, because, you know, he was himself, he he had run for president in uh, 1916. Uh, It's often said that, you know, Taft was somebody who was, you know, really a judge who was unfortunately uh, thrown into the presidency. Uh, Hughes was just, just the other way around. He was sort of a natural executive who ended up you know, on the court. And I think he really miscalculated because public opinion, even if they didn't agree with the court's decision in many particular cases, was on the side of the court throughout this uh, conflict. So there really was no reason for uh, for Hughes to back down and to get Roberts to, to back down with him. So I think that was a um, uh, sort of an unnecessary capitulation uh, to, to New Deal jurisprudence. Hmm. All right. So now we get to the Warren court. And this is where uh, in your opinion, the court becomes uh, supreme, or uh, or juristocracy arrives, I guess. But uh, and that really uh, really starts with the the ruling in Brown v. Board that sort of launched today's omnipotent court. Yep. Yes, uh, Brown. Again, at the time, uh, Brown was was very controversial, and the public was very much divided about it. Uh, and the court over time, uh, the you know, public opinion came around so that, you know, within 10 years, Congress begins to act and you have the, you know, the culmination of the civil rights movement. And in retrospect, you know, people were able to say, well, the court did the right thing when nobody else would. Um, even, you know, even people who agree with the outcome uh, or sort of think that the court did the right thing in the Brown case agree that it wasn't very good law. It right. wasn't very good jurisprudence. Uh, and. The problem is the court, once they acquire the kind of moral power, they've been drawing off the moral capital 
that they acquired in Brown versus Board of Education, uh, they began to think that, well, we solved the biggest problem in America, although actually they didn't. Uh, the actual impact of Brown versus Board of Education was, was almost nothing. Uh, Ten years after Brown, there was almost no desegregation uh, in, in American schools. It wasn't until Congress and the president finally got on board in the 1960s that, that things began to change. But then they began to think that we can solve all these other uh, divisive questions uh, in America. Uh, again, abortion was the sort of counter example uh, where the country was very closely divided about it uh, in 1973. And the court intervened, thinking that sooner or later they'll come around and you know see things mm-hmm. are okay. And 50 years later, if anything, the American people are just more divided about it yeah. than were 50 years ago. It seems to me that that is where the court gets itself into trouble uh, or the most trouble is when these cases where it decides that, all right, we're going to settle everything. <laughs> yeah, this issue forever for good for all time on this, whether it's, you know, Dred Scott or uh, Plessy v. Ferguson or, or Brown or Roe or, or what have you. It seems to me like those opinions when the court decides that, um, when it gets above its station a little bit, yeah. uh, when it, it when it decides these things, that it gets itself in the most trouble. Yes, and it's interesting to see how there's several occasions where the court has backed off in uh, response to public opinion. In 1972, they came very close to saying that capital punishment was per se uh, unconstitutional, mm. and the public reaction to that was was great enough so that four years later the court allowed it made it more difficult. Uh, but states, uh, especially states like Texas now, uh, have been able to maintain capital punishment despite uh, well, you know, the, the court's uh, intervention. Mm. And you know, Justice Thurgood Marshall in the, the second of these cases said, well, if, if the American people understood more about capital punishment, they would oppose it. You know, if they saw things our way, it's our job to you know, sort of educate them. Uh, but things didn't work out that way with regard to capital punishment. Many of the criminal justice decisions – uh, the court had to were very controversial, and at the end of the uh, uh, Warren Court era, they began to take a, you know, sort of walk back some of those some of those decisions. Again, it took 50 years, uh, but they finally gave up on the uh, on the abortion one as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sort of uh, my thoughts on the death penalty. <laughs> I've heard this said before, uh, basically against it in theory but for it in practice. Or <laughs> <laughs> um, well, not, not in like all cases, but like extreme cases, you know, where you have these guys that are like the dude in Wisconsin that um, drove his car through the Christmas parade or like these school shooters or something like that, or like a serial killer or something. It's like, yeah, I think you got to go like, uh, you know, uh, something that's like very clear cut and yeah. like obvious. Like I think uh, I'm in favor of that, but for other stuff, no, uh, but anyway. Uh. Yeah, well, just just as with the abortion <laughs> issue, and I think um, Justice Alito and especially Justice uh, Kavanaugh and his concurrence tried to emphasize that whatever you think about this as a policy question, it's just not a constitutional question. Right, These right. Are questions that were left to the states, mm-hmm. and uh, like it or not. Yeah. So, all right. So, judicial supremacy it arrives with Warren, with the Warren Court, with Brown v. Board. Uh, or this is where the court becomes supreme, but how does it stay supreme going hmm. forward in the in the post-Warren era? Yeah, by uh, by being careful about the issues that it picks. It's, it's funny because the uh, the court will often get out you know ahead of public opinion, and many of the courts you know people who are in favor, liberals who were very hopeful that 
the, the Warren court and courts like it could solve a whole bunch of uh, questions that the American political system uh, couldn't solve. That's their mm -hmm. basic argument in favor of judicial activism is the court needs to step in when the American constitutional system doesn't give democracy uh, its fullest expression. Uh, and the court, as I said, they backed off on the death penalty and they avoided some questions like uh, the right to assisted suicide. Uh, and the court said, you know, we're not going to settle this question right now for the time being. They came pretty close to saying that we're going to wait until we think that the public is ready for this. <laughs> they said, well, we'll stay our hand on this issue. So in a sense, the court in some ways responds more effectively to public opinion, especially elite public opinion. You know, mm. the court knows that you know, it's not sort of ordinary Americans that they worry about so much as the sort of opinion makers, you know, the uh, uh, the, the the academic world, the uh, the media world. Yeah, Joe Sixpack uh, isn't uh, right. Yeah, so Joe Sixpack isn't you know checking SCOTUS blog every right, morning, and that, that's the world that, yeah. that they came out of again. All yeah. these, their educational, their formation uh, has made them sort of within a, a sort of bubble of uh, sort of an elite academic uh, legal world. So they've been pretty good at you know keeping themselves from uh, provoking too much of a, a political reaction, and um, uh, the. The idea that Republicans who are trying to change the judiciary by changing the personnel had such a difficult time doing that mm -hmm. uh, was an indication of the connection, I think, of, uh, of, of court liberals with the, uh, with the important institutions of the country. Yeah. So um, speaking of, has the development of originalism done anything to curtail this uh, judicial supremacy at all? And frankly, no, um, because uh, liberals have, you know, they said, I think it was, it was Justice uh, Kagan who said, you know, we're all originalists now. Yeah, right, uh, right, they right. found ways to turn originalist methods to their own purposes. Uh, I think it was in the Bostock case where Justice Gorsuch, you know, who was a Trump appointee, says that, you know, gender identity uh, was what the framers of uh, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act had in mind in 1964 as an originalist argument. And I think it's it's a ridiculous originalist argument, but it's still an originalist argument. So, mm. uh, no, I think originalism has been tamed, uh, and there really there really was nothing inherently conservative about originalism to begin with. In fact, before uh, the Warren Court, you know, everyone was an originalist. Uh, if you look at the Dred Scott decision, both uh, the the majority and the dissenters in that case are making originalist arguments. Sure. Uh, the Lincoln-Douglas debates are really just an extended uh, originalist argument. So mm. um, uh, uh, a colleague of mine named Jonathan O'Neill wrote a book some years ago, uh, sort of the first history of originalism. And that's one of the points that he makes was originalism was sort of taken for granted until until very recently. Yeah. So is the situation we're in now, is it, uh, is it really the fault of – the other branches of the federal government, the executive and uh, Congress, are, are they are they complicit in this in this rise of the judiciary uh, and this rise of judicial supremacy of juristocracy? Yeah, they certainly are. And uh, in, in a way, it's a parallel to a, a very similar development in the 20th century, the, the rise of the administrative state, as it's now called, uh, mm. the bureaucracy. And you find a, a similar dynamic at work where very often congressmen or presidents find it very convenient uh, to, for the court or for the bureaucrats to take some question out of politics, uh, especially controversial issues that they don't want to deal with. They're able to go back and tell their constituents, well, you know, I, I don't have to take a stand on this issue because the courts or the bureaucrats have taken it out of 
uh, you know, out, out of out of contention. And so these other political actors, the so-called political branches, uh, are often, yeah, they very much are. They have their own interests in a more powerful judiciary or more powerful uh, bureaucracy. Again, before the Civil War, you, you can say to some degree the, the, the court could be, to some degree, uh, excused for picking up the invitation that it was given to settle the, the, the issue of slavery. Right. All right. I gotcha. All right. So uh, the present day, this... I guess let's talk about this most recent term. Um, how was uh, on on this front? How was how did this term go? Uh, thinking of Dobbs, thinking of um, I guess West Virginia versus EPA. Right. Uh, trying to think some of the uh, oh, there's a big Second Amendment case. Yeah, the, the religious freedom religious uh, free, case. Yeah. 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 So, so now this is uh, again <laughs> uh, sort of the at long last the uh, the payoff. Uh, and in a way, it'd be very interesting to see how, you know, uh, former President Trump sort of plays this in his, his reelection campaign, because uh, there were a lot of conservatives, myself included, uh, who voted for Donald Trump very reluctantly. And one of the principal reasons was his the first guy who ever came out with a you know, list of people that he was going to appoint uh, to the court. Mm-hmm. And he very truly said one of the most important things a president does is appoint uh, justices to the Supreme Court. He was very fortunate uh, to have three openings in one term. Uh, that's that's rare, especially in these yeah. days. Justices live so long, and there's such an incentive to appoint them when they're uh, when they're young. Yeah, Mitch McConnell and, with the assist there. On the, right, on that's the, true. Yeah. That's true. A lot yeah. of conservatives, and I never expected him to be as as steadfast uh, as as he was about that. Yeah, that was a huge gamble, uh, right. you know, because it wasn't looking. I, I know I went into election night. Uh, I'm not a trump fan uh by any magnitude either um but that election night i was just like so miserable like early on because i just like thought like oh god hillary clinton's gonna be president you know what i mean it was just i was just in such a bad mood um (laughs) and you know because it 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 really didn't look good for i mean if you looking at all the polls and everything it really didn't look good for trump and then it looked like that gamble that mcconnell took not just like all right we'll just get um Merrick Garland, you know, we'll just give Obama Merrick Garland. So that way, when Hillary comes in, she doesn't nominate like, you know, the the most left wing uh, right. uh, available judge possible. And we'll right. just that's sort of consider that a, a small victory. And uh, he decided not to do it. And, you know, um, it let it all roll in the dice and it worked out. So, yeah. And uh, uh, there was some talk on the on the left after that, that they were going to, you know, again, pack the court, expand the right, size of right. the court. Uh, and yet, as, ironically enough, even after the last term, with all these important conservative decisions, they seem to have backed off from that. You know, I don't, don't hear so much about that, uh, you know, anymore. Um, well, that might I just think, be because the term is over. I mean, like once, you know, the, the next term, if, they, if there's something that <laughs> if the court rules on that they don't agree with that, you know, you mo- you'll yeah. probably hear the same choruses. Yeah, no, it looks like it's going to be affirmative <clears throat> action in mm. the Harvard and uh, North Carolina cases. But. Uh, I, some too, they, they may read this, you know, the midterm election results saying that, oh, Dobbs was the best thing that ever happened to the Democratic Party. Yeah. You know, it staved off the red wave. And again, who knows the kind of political calculations that are people people are going to be make, making. Uh, this is where I have to say I'm just a historian. My my predictions politically are worthless. Uh, I remember in October of 2016, I thought Hillary Clinton was going to win all 50 states. You know, I was <laughs> completely wrong. I thought Donald Trump would never get the nomination. Yeah, me too. Elected, uh, so. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm with you. But um, all right. So 
I kept you about as long as I said I was going to keep you. So, uh, I guess finishing up, just a couple more questions. Uh, basically, um, you know, what is to be done? How do we, uh, how do we fix this? Does, do we, is there anything else we can do other than just hoping the court, uh, decides to relinquish some of its power well, itself? Or do we gonna, are we gonna have to wait for Congress to grow an institutional spine? Yes. Or, you know, like, uh, how do, what, what is to be done? Now, I think this is Justice Alito's hope in the in the Dobbs case is we got to get out of these questions and turn them back to the responsible political actors and let the American people uh, decide these questions. Uh, the, the EPA, the West Virginia case, was also along those the same lines. You know, we can't simply let Congress give a blank check to these administrators. They have to do their duty and legislate. So I think the court is trying to restore both itself and other political actors to their proper role within the uh, political system. Now, we'll see, uh, like the Joe Biden uh, uh, student debt forgiveness program, I assume that's going to end up in the court's hands as well, and whether they will say, okay, you know, presidents can't exercise power in a, in a reckless, uh, arbitrary kind of way. So I, I, I'm very hopeful that this court has a proper understanding of the structure of the constitutional system and of its own place within it, and maybe the court will become less of a of less political interest because it will divest itself mm-hmm. of its its power to uh, you know to to settle policy questions. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, final question then. This is something I ask uh, everybody that comes on the podcast. But um, you know, what, what would you like the audience to get out of this book, or you know, what would you? What's the one thing you'd want a reader to uh, take with them having read it? Uh, mostly how, how recent this is, uh, that there's, you know, 150 plus years of American history where the court had, I think, a much healthier position uh, within the system of, of American government. And what we just kind of take for granted today, where most people assume, yeah, that when the court speaks, you know, that's that. You know, when Al Gore, you know, just sort of, you know, backed down instantly to the Bush versus Gore decision, mm-hmm. uh, uh, George W. Bush, who won that election, saying that, well, I think the McCain-Feingold uh, Act is unconstitutional, but that's for the court to decide, not for me. Uh, this idea that I know, think that was impeachable, honestly. Yes, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I think it was just it was also just witless on his part. You yeah, know, he just, we, we've all absorbed and internalized this view of the court as the, you know, sort of uh, uh, arbiter, you know, the ultimate sovereign uh, arbiter of the constitutional system. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's just like if you if you're a president, you take an oath to defend, you know, protect the Constitution, all that stuff. And if you come out and say, like, well, I think this is unconstitutional. But I'm going to let it ride. Yep. Uh, yeah. Well, well, then obviously you're breaking your oath because. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But know, so. again, he, yeah. he could be excused by saying, well, I thought the Constitution is what the court says it is. Right. Yeah. Uh, and really, even Dwight Eisenhower said he didn't say it publicly, uh, but he wrote to his brother. He says, look, you know, that's the, the, the I don't agree with the Brown decision, but if the court said it, that's that. Uh, so, you know, if we can get over that assumption, uh, if my book hopefully can show that there were historical alternatives to this, the other ways in which constitutional questions have been, uh, have been worked out, mm-hmm. uh, what some academics, uh, refer to as constitutional construction right. as opposed to constitutional interpretation. Right. Okay, great. Well, uh, before we go, is there, uh, anything else you'd, uh, like to plug any appearances, <laughs> social media, anything like that? Uh, uh no, I just like to say, uh, you know, I t- I've been teaching at Hillsdale college for over 20 years and I have the great luxury of being able to teach constitutional history in, in two semesters there. And this is what that book came out of. So it was really my colleagues and the students at Hillsdale, uh, who, who most inspired this book. All right. Well, good plug for Hillsdale there. 
Okay, uh, the book, again, is uh, How the Court Became Supreme, The Origins of American Juristocracy. Uh, and you said you're a, a history professor, so this isn't, uh, for people out there, this isn't a book on legal theory or it's not a philosophical book. I mean, it's just basically a work of history, which is nice because normally when I have uh, uh, law professors on or, you know, books on law, it's usually like legal theory or something like that. And I have to tell them before the podcast starts that, you know, um, you're going to have to hold my hand through this because yeah. I'm a big dum dumb. And so a lot of this is, you know, beyond me. Uh, so, um, you, yeah, this, you, have to, you have to speak very slowly and you know, yeah, that sort of thing. But yeah, uh, no, this is, uh, this is, like I said, it's just a straight up piece of history. Um, you know, you're not going to really, uh, tax your brain reading. It's very well done. Very, um, the evidence in Marshall is, uh, pretty concrete. Uh, it's, a and a, a very good narrative too. So, um, I highly, highly recommend this book to everybody out there. And the, and the cover is very nice as well. I got to <laughs> say the, I the hat, uh, tip of the hat to the graphic designer yes. at uh, LSU press. Cause it's a, it's a cool looking cover. So uh, anyway, yeah, again, the, uh, the book is how the court became Supreme, the origins of American juristocracy. Uh, the author is Dr. Paul Marino. Uh, the book is from Louisiana state university press. So, uh, Dr. Marino, uh, again, thank you very much for coming on the podcast, discussing the book with me. Uh, thank you for writing the book. In the first place, uh, appreciate your uh, the time and effort you put into it, and it uh, certainly shows uh, in in the uh, final product there. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you. It was a great uh, pleasure and, and an honor. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. And again, if you like this podcast, please uh, consider leaving us a five star review and sharing with your friends. And if you have books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, or if you have any uh, questions, comments, anything like that, you can reach out to me at uh, tbenson at heartland.org. That's uh, t b e n s o n at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And we do have our Twitter account for the podcast. Uh, you can reach out to us there, too. You know, if any questions, comments, whatever, you know, give us a follow, uh, send us a message, a DM, whatever they call it. Uh, you can uh, check us out. It's at our Twitter handle is at illbooks, at I-L-L books. So uh, make sure you do that. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. So thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you guys next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye-bye.
court. Yes, sir, Bryce. Get me George Dredd. George Dredd, otherwise known as Dredd, but I suggest. Yes, sir. George Dredd. Yes, sir. You are rude. We are dressing, sir. Yes, my lord. Oh, that's better. Let's take this book into your right hand and repeat after me. I am here to speak the truth. I'm here to speak the truth. Speak up. I'm here to speak the truth. I am sure living truth. True and living truth. Speak up. True and living truth. So help my jumping gingerbread. So help my jumping gingerbread. Well, I can see here we have been charged for impersonating judge or in plain words, bogus judge. Now what have you to say for yourself, Judge Red? Not guilty. Not guilty. In front of 12 of your own fellow men, as soon as they arrive at the verdict, I know how to deal with you, Judge. Hi! 